Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This episode of Clear and Vivid with Catherine Hayhoe is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films. The Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. study that comes out, it seems like, is telling us that climate is changing faster or to a greater extent or impacting us in ways that we didn't know about. Most of them unpleasant. A few times we get a little piece of good news, but mostly it's pretty negative. So to, to look for hope, to look for the good news, first of all, we have to go out and look for it. It doesn't come to find us. And so I look for the hope in, in what people are doing. Catherine Hayhoe is an extraordinary communicator about a topic that desperately needs good communicating the increasingly dire climate crisis that's gripping our planet. What makes her so special is that she finds a way to connect with people, even people who deny the reality of climate change, and she does it by talking about things that matter to them. As director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech, Dr. Hayhoe is also a leading researcher into the consequences of decisions we make today that have an effect on the livability of the planet in the future. I'm so glad you're with me today because I've been anxious all day knowing we were going to talk about this. Is there anything you can tell me to help me calm down? <laughs> about climate change in general, you mean? Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, other things that bother me, you don't have to deal with. But if you can just handle climate change, that'd be a big improvement. Yeah. I think you, sh- you ship me a special couch that we can lay on while we have this conversation, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. The climate crisis couch. It's good. Exactly. It's alliterative. I like that. Yes. Uh, well, it is true. And when, when we look at the science, it is really hard to see any hope in the science. I mean, every new study that comes out, it seems like, is telling us that climate is changing faster or to a greater extent or impacting us in ways that we didn't know about. Uh, today's headline was sea levels rising faster. The headline I know that to wake up to that. And I, I mean, I'm on the 51st floor in my building, but I don't want to have beachfront property. <laughs> No, you don't. So, so how bad is that? Like, what what kind of terrible news was that this morning? Well, it, exactly. And and every new study that comes out seems to find that something is happening faster or that it's impacting us in, in new and different ways. Most of them unpleasant. A few times we get a little piece of good news, but mostly it's pretty negative. So to, to look for hope, to look for the good news, first of all, we have to go out and look for it. It doesn't come to find us. The news media is built around sharing information that is negative or frustrating or fearful. Well, 
I know, this morning, one of the other pieces of wonderful information I got this morning was that earthworms are making their way farther and farther north. And I didn't know that they, uh, they, they gave off methane. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, so, I read that story so that, too. Did, 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 <laughs> yes. So, so how, you sound more cheerful than I do, and I want to know why. <laughs> well, what what I do is, I go out and I I look for that hope because we have to go out and look for it. And so I look for the hope in in what people are doing. And surprisingly, I actually find great examples there. So when I saw that BBC story, I saw a BBC story about the sea level rise happening faster uh, than we thought. I immediately went and looked for, and Google is trained now, so it knows I look for these good news stories. I found a story about how Minnesota's Excel Energy is closing their coal production and adding solar which is mm. great. Um, I The TED Talk I did a couple of months ago is about how one of the most important things we can do about climate change is talk about it. Because if we don't talk about it, why would we care? And if we don't care, why would we ever demand action? And so I was giving a talk just the other day, and a man that I had never met came up to me and he said, well, I'm from a pretty small town, but I saw your TED Talk on how we should have conversations about climate change, about why it matters to us and what we can do to fix it. So in our town, we set out to have conversations. And in the last few months, we have had 10,000 conversations about climate change to the point where we are now considering declaring a climate emergency, as as many cities and towns are doing. I mean, that was such good news. I practically had tears in my eyes. Well, that is amazing because I I think I saw that TED Talk you gave, and it sounded really interesting because it was something practical that each of us can do, which is to talk about it to, to the extent that we understand the facts or the implications in our daily lives. But I wondered how we should be talking about it. I mean, I can imagine ways to talk about it, but I'd like to hear from you what your best advice is. Well, my best my best advice based on thousands of conversations that I've had, some of which went well and some of which did not. And of course, you always learn the most from the ones that didn't, I think. Yeah. The best advice is to start the conversation not with what we most disagree on, but rather with what we most agree on, with what we have in common. So that means that instead of hearing somebody say something that you disagree with and immediately jumping in with, how could you say that? That is completely false. I know, Instead, the time to have a conversation is when we're talking about something that we we do agree about. And it doesn't have to... not, not climate change. It could be, you know, that we're bemoaning the quality of coffee these days, or that we're concerned about the changes that we're seeing in our garden, or we're worried about the economy and China getting ahead of the United States. Almost every conversation these days, we can connect the dots to how a changing climate is impacting something we already care about, or how clean energy and climate solutions can actually help with something that we're concerned about, especially when it comes to the economy, our resources, air and water quality, our health, um, international um, competitiveness, national security. So, so if we can begin those conversations with something we agree on, then we can walk together connecting the dots to why we already care about climate change. We just didn't realize it because it affects something we already care about. And then what we can do to fix it. Because if we talk about a problem without solutions, then, you know, what what is our response other than saying, wow, this is a terrible problem. I If there's nothing I can do about it, you know, just my, my, my defense mechanism is to pull the blanket up over my head and, and just disassociate. So we have to talk positive, constructive, plausible, relevant solutions too. So let, let me try to imagine one of those conversations. Can you pull in your mind from one of the 10,000 conversations you've had like this, 
one that went, say, from uh, simply talking about your, your mutual interest in your gardens and knowing you're talking to somebody who either most likely thinks climate change is a hoax or has said on other occasions that it is. How do you get from the garden to, oh, by the way, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> yes. this is all related to climate change and the person doesn't try to back you against the wall or something? How do you, how do you make that transition? Yes. Well, I often have these conversations uh, with gardeners and even more more challenging with farmers and producers. Um, and so what I usually do is I start by asking them questions. I say, well, you know, you know, what do you grow? And it, people, you know, always love talking about what they grow. What have been some of your what have been some of your challenges in recent years? Have you had any difficult years? Oh, yes. This, you know, this year was really difficult because, first of all, there was no rain and everything died. And then we got this incredible heavy downpour and it just flooded everything. Well, have you have you noticed any any tr- changes long term over you know what you grow and how it grows and when it flowers and blooms and when you know if you're a farmer when you harvest it and have you noticed that you know these dry periods are a bit unusual or the heavy rainfall is getting more frequent and when you ask people about their experience we've gotten to the point now across North America where most people can actually see these things happening and they will say yeah you know we've always had droughts in this part of the country but the last one we had was something else it was really unusual and I said well you know, it's true. If we if we look at the data, you can see that spring is coming earlier, that our droughts are getting stronger, that our summer heat is getting more extreme. And so using past data is really helpful because we can talk about what they've already lived through. And then we can say, well, you know, so so it, looking to the future, if this continues, what are you going to do? How are you going to make sure you're okay if this gets worse in the future? And so you can have incredibly positive conversations about resilience and adaptation, or even about the benefits of clean energy and what that means for us in the places where we live, without even uh, mentioning the words climate change. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I gave a talk at a water managers uh, conference here in Texas. Um, and water, of course, is one of our prime resources in a place where many people don't have enough. And I give an, an entire talk looking at historical climate trends and future trends. And I did the whole thing without ever mentioning the words climate and change together. And I will never forget at the end, a woman came rushing up to me and she grabbed my hand. She shook it enthusiastically and she said, I agree with everything you said. That makes total sense. Those people who talk about global warming, I don't agree with them at all, but this, <laughs> <laughs> this is right. So now there, you, you've just talked your way into my next question is once you get them agreeing about their their own personal interests, say whether it's farming or whatever else it is, how do you get them on board with the general notion that we have to do something about climate change or everybody's own personal interest is going to be badly affected? Mm-hmm. There was a woman who didn't get the connection. Right. Well, so a lot of what we see, both in personal anecdotes as well as in the social science, which is really a fascinating way of understanding how we as humans interact with information, we see that when we feel as if we are part of the solution rather than just being part of the problem, that that actually changes our minds and our attitudes on the more politically polarized aspect of the issue, which is, is it really humans that are causing it? And is it weaning ourselves off fossil fuels that's going to fix it? If ironically, So it's, if we, it's better to be on a positive bandwagon than a negative mm-hmm. one. 
Exactly. If we feel like we're helping, then we're more likely to say, oh, well, if I'm helping, then everybody else should be doing something too. And so that's yeah. why, you know, talking about economic benefits, talking about, um, you know, the benefits that clean energy brings to local jobs, to local farmers and producers, they can essentially grow their own crop insurance on their own land with wind and solar these days at the current prices we have. Getting people on board with the solutions then makes them feel like, well, I'm part of the solution. So everybody should also be part of the solution. You said something a minute ago about floods, recent floods, and extreme weather. Until recently, there's been on the part of climate scientists the need to say you can't take temporary weather as an indication of either climate change or natural cycles or whatever whatever the obstructive idea is against the notion of climate change. And yet, more and more, I see scientists saying this instance of weather that we just experienced is an example that climate change and the the crisis that it involves is already upon us. Am I seeing a change in the way scientists talk about weather now? You are, and you're also seeing an advance in the science that underlies it. We are starting to be able to parse out the extent to which climate change exacerbated a given event. For example, we know that... um, hurricanes in the Gulf Coast are a normal and natural part of life. Um, there was a terrible hurricane that hit Galveston at the turn of the of the century in the 1900s that devastated that part of Texas. And so having Hurricane Harvey hit again was nothing new. But we know that almost 40% of the rain that fell during Hurricane Harvey, and in some places, of course, they got about 50 inches of rain in a few places, of that rain would not have happened if you had the same storm 100 years ago when the planet was not as warm. How do you know that? I'm I'm a little slow in getting the connection. How do you know that? Well, what we're able to do is we run these um, giant simulations in the lab of, of what the world would look like a hundred years ago, even what it would look like a thousand years ago, what it looks like today. And we look at how much moisture there would be available in the air for a giant storm like a hurricane to sweep up and dump on us. We look at how much energy there is in the ocean to fuel stronger, bigger, slower storms. And so we can actually compare the storms of today with the storms of 50 or 100 years ago. And we see in the data as well as seeing through our calculations that are based on on physics, we see in the data and the physics that storms today, hurricanes, cyclones, and typhoons today are bigger, they're slower, they intensify a lot faster, and they have a lot more rainfall associated with them than they would have 50 or 100 years ago. We also see that um, on average, for example, across the Western U.S. since the 1980s, we would have seen about 11 million acres burned by wildfire because wildfire is a natural part of the ecosystem in the Western U.S. But thanks to a changing climate, which is exacerbating how much area those wildfires burn, we've seen more than double that area burned since the 1980s. So climate change is loading the dice against us. We always have a chance of rolling a double six, but now our chances of rolling a double six have increased and we're even starting to roll a couple of double sevens. So we're talking about things that are frightening, and yet it's kind of hard not to talk about these frightening signs of the crisis. But I remember you were saying in in one of your TED Talks that fear won't motivate long-term work. Did I get that right? 
Exactly. It won't motivate the long-term action we need to fix climate change. It will give us this knee-jerk reaction that might move us in the right direction, but it won't sustain us over the long term. And why do you think that is? Did you base that on, on your experience, on studies, on intuition? How, what, why, why do you think fear is not a good motivator? Well, first of all, we, we do need to understand just how bad this is. I mean, sugarcoating it is not going to help us, and it is really bad. We're not talking about the future of the planet. We're talking about the future of civilization on this planet. Uh, we yeah. humans are some of the most vulnerable species on the planet after the polar bear to the impacts of a changing climate. And we, we do need to understand that. But if we're presented with this massive global problem that we feel like there's nothing we can really do to fix, then, you know, it's almost like that movie where an asteroid was going to hit the earth and the movie was just about, well, what are you going to do in your last hours on earth? Because it's all going to end anyways, right? Because <laughs> <So. laughs> there's not much else to do. No. But there is, a, apparently there is else to do with regard to climate change. There is, right? what are, yes. what, what, When we're talking to one another, what are the solutions we ought to be talking about? Are, are there solutions and, and, and can we seriously refer to them? Yes. And acting is what gives us hope. If we feel that we are personally able to contribute to the solution, then we are, and we are able to advocate for others to contribute to the solution, we are able to alter the outcome. And in fact, I can say that professionally because I study the impact that our choices make on the future. I look at what's going to happen as the world gets warmer by one, two, three, and four degrees Celsius, or, you know, the equivalent Fahrenheit. And I can tell you there is a world of difference between a four-degree versus a two-degree world. We know from the IPCC's report that just came out last October, there's even noticeable differences between one and a half and two degrees of warming. So our choices really do matter. And by understanding that if we do nothing, the impacts are very serious and even dangerous, and if we do act, we will still see some impacts, but many of them can be prepared for and adapted to. By understanding that, I feel like that's an empowering message. So it's not like we don't feel like we're you know tied to the railway track seeing the train, you know, bearing down on us around the corner and we can't do anything about it. We actually have the ability to act, to alter our future. And so um, talking about solutions is not something that I, as a climate scientist, <laughs> was, was educated in. We're very good at diagnosing the problem. But mm. I had to learn a lot about what those solutions look like um, individually, stepping on the carbon scales, figuring out where our own carbon footprint comes from, learning that reducing my food waste has a huge impact on my carbon footprint. So too does transitioning. Oh, say that again. I, oh. I don't, I'm not aware of that. At yes. least I'm not sure. And I never made that connection. How, would you explain that? So, about the food waste? Yes. So it turns out that we throw away a third of the food that we produce which is massive. Mm. And when that food decays, because it's organic material, it produces heat-trapping gases. Not to mention that often in the production of the food, we also generated heat-trapping gases. So if food waste were its own country, it would be the third biggest emitter of heat-trapping gases after China and the U.S. I never heard that figure before. That's interesting. So what can we do about it? How can you sequester food waste? Well, 
one of the things, the, the beauty of this is we can act personally as well as collectively. So when I heard that, and I didn't even know that myself until just a few years ago, I altered how I grocery shop. I used to go grocery shopping. I'm a very efficient person. So I used to go grocery shopping, you know, I'd plan out the menus and I'd go once every two weeks and I'd buy an enormous trunk full of food and I'd shove it all in the fridge and freezer. And then by the time you got to the bottom, you know, I'd have all the stuff that had gone bad because I forgot it was there. So I restructured my life. So I now stop at a grocery store that is on my way home from the university. I go grocery shopping twice a week with no more than two bags and we eat everything in the fridge before I go again. And it's it's reduced our food waste and our food bill massively. And instead of an extra freezer, I don't have an extra freezer anymore. I installed drying racks so I can hang my clothes up to dry instead of putting in the in the dryer. And again, the impression that an individual person would have often, one that I've had many times is, should I actually go to that trouble? What difference will it make in the long run? That little little drop in the ocean. I heard today this amazing thing. Is this is this is this just a myth, or is this really happening? That there are some members in in uh, the leadership of the country who are saying things are so bad. If you change emissions in cars, it really is only a drop in the bucket. It won't matter. You might as well not even do that. Keep cars emitting what they emit, and uh, we'll just have to uh, buck up and. Suck it up is a way way yeah. of saying it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure because there, there's five stages to denial. And sometimes we get a little bit excited and encouraged when we see politicians moving down through these stages. But what we have to recognize is every single one of these stages of denial is aimed at the same net long-term goal, which is to prevent action. So stage one is it isn't real. And then stage two is it's real, but it's not humans. And then stage three is it's real, but hey, it's actually better for us. You know, we'll be better off if it's warmer. <laughs> yeah. CO2 is plant food. Um, and then stage four is, okay, well, sure, it's real and it's us and it might be bad, but it's too expensive to fix it. It's easier not to fix it. And then um, stage five is, it's too late. You really should have warned us about this earlier. <laughs> yeah, you, I love that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, that, that ranks with uh, climate scientists are only doing this to get rich. It does. It does. Yes. And I've had yeah. my own experiences with being accused of that, including after the National Climate Assessment, which we got paid exactly zero dollars to write. Um, a lot of the accusations we got were that, you know, you're just in it for the money. <laughs> so I say, I'm still waiting for the keys to that Swiss bank account to arrive one day. <laughs> <laughs> When we come back, Catherine Hayhoe sees hope as more and more of us grasp the fact that climate change is here and now, and that there are things we can do to prevent the worst from happening. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Catherine Hayhoe. What do you think is the most active part of our population the most effective part of the population that's helping drive an awareness of the importance of the climate crisis and the importance of 
working towards solutions? Is there is there a, a group or a, a category of us that we can hope for good results from? That's a great question. Um, if I had to pick, in general, one group of people that's making the biggest difference today, right now, I think it's kids. Children mm. are speaking up, and their voices are so genuine. They're so real. They come straight from their hearts. Um, there's no artifice in what they say. And here in the U.S., as well as around the world, we are seeing children speaking up and saying, we need to preserve the planet. So it supports us. It's not about saving the planet. It's about our future. And as parents, we know, I mean, what would we not do for our children? So um, a new study just came out uh, last week in North Carolina, which, you know, is a pretty conservative part of the country. And they found that educating children about the impacts of a changing climate, as well as the solutions, had a positive and noticeable difference on their parents' opinions. And in fact, they found the biggest change in the parents' opinion was when a young daughter talked to her conservative dad. That was where the biggest opinion shift came in. Here you have kids speaking to us from the future because the future is them. And they they can make that point about their own life. But how do you deal with this problem? I think it's a problem. And that's that people in general talk about making a good future for our children and grandchildren. The farther out you get in generations from right now, the less interested you are in taking care of them for some reason. Mm -hmm. They, They could be direct descendants of yours. But you don't even think about them. Most people talk about their grandchildren and can't imagine the grandchildren's grandchildren. I even had a friend say to me once when I said, how long do you think the human species will last? She said, well, what the hell do I care? I won't be here. Oh, my. Now, that's, that's a brutal way to express it. But most of us express it in the way we think about future generations, in the way mm-hmm. we, we prepare for them. We don't really care that much. We don't think about it that much. Do you, have you seen that? Do you, do you have a way of dealing with it if you have? I have seen exactly that, uh, to the point where I believe that the most dangerous myth that the largest number of people have bought into is not the myth that tops the headlines every day, that you know people believe that science is somehow optional, that you can choose whether to believe in it or not, as if it's some type of religion well, yeah. and your opinion matters. Um, the biggest myth that the largest number of us have bought into is the myth that it doesn't matter to me. Because when you look at the data, and there's this great set of maps that you're probably familiar with, they're called the Yale Climate Opinion Maps. Um, no, I don't think I've seen that. How oh, does it go? oh, yes. You need to look at these because they are fascinating. If you just Google Yale Climate Opinion Maps 2018, they'll pop right up. And they have surveyed the country by county and by congressional district. And what they find is when you say, do you think global warming is happening? Um, The entire country pretty much says yes. 70% of people say, oh, yes, you know, global warming is definitely happening. And then you say, well, will it harm plants and animals? Yes, 70% of people say yes. Will it harm future generations? 70% say yes. Will it harm people in developing countries? The number goes down a little bit. 62% say yes. Will it harm people in the United States? The number goes down a bit. 58% say yes. And then the rubber hits the road. 
Will global warming harm me personally? The number plummets to 40%. Even in places like, you know, Oregon or Washington State or New York or Massachusetts, where you think people would be concerned, they don't think it matters to us. And so the biggest and most widespread myth that the largest number of people bought into is the myth that climate change is a distant issue in space and time. It only matters to people or polar bears who live far away, or it only matters to future generations, not us. And so that's why I think the National Climate Assessment, which I was one of the co-authors on that came out on Black Friday last Thanksgiving, That's why I think the National Climate Assessment is so important. It goes through every single region of the United States, plus the islands and Alaska. It goes through every single sector, water, health, transportation, national security. It goes through all of these. And it says, here is how climate change is already affecting us today in the places where we live. And then here's what's going to happen in the future, depending on whether we can act or not. Here's the difference that our choices make. So I think the National Climate Assessment is an incredibly powerful tool because it brings it down to the local scale where we live. And it says, okay, if I live in Florida, we are already seeing sunny day flooding today. And here's how much worse it's gotten in the last 30 years. If I live in Oregon, here's how much worse our wildfires have gotten. If I live in the Midwest, here's how much worse our heavy precipitation and flooding has gotten. It really makes it local and it makes it no longer a distant issue. It makes it an issue that is imminent, that is personal, and that is here and now. And you mentioned less well-to-do countries. Um, If rising seawater threatens beaches and villages and towns and cities situated on on those shores around the world, there, there's going to be a tremendous migration problem, isn't there? Oh, yes, there is. I mean, what what we experience ourselves personally is already getting to the point where we notice it. We notice the negative effects. But Climate change is the most profoundly unfair issue. It disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people, both here in the U.S. as well as around the world, who have done the least to contribute to the problem. And when we recognize that two-thirds of the world's biggest cities are within just a few feet of sea level, and we are looking at at least a few feet of sea level rise this century— the magnitude of the potential refugee crisis takes something like Syria and it increases it by at least two orders of magnitude. Imagine if you had a um, hundred Syrian refugee crises happening at the same time. That would have an enormous impact on political stability, on conflict, on resource scarcity. I mean, it really is the future of civilization as we know it that is at risk. That's one of the problems with the whole question is you have to think so many steps out in order to comprehend that we're playing a game of chess here and our king is going to be in serious danger in two or three moves. It's hard for us to think ahead two or three moves. Uh That's a good analogy. Is it easier for people to acknowledge the reality of climate change than it is for them to pay for it? It is To pay for the solutions, you know? 
it's easy for them to acknowledge that climate is changing. The real sticking point is the human attribution part of it. And that actually gets back to what you were mentioning before, the idea that it's a chess game where we're a couple of, of moves ahead. That's why attribution and saying, hey, the Midwest had a horrendous flooding problem this spring. Here's how much worse what already happened to you has become as a result of a changing climate. So we actually understand what the damages look like. And then in the Midwest, for example, you could say, hey, did you know there's a farmer in Illinois who farms about 600 acres? And he's discovered that according to current prices and costs, if he ups his solar coverage to about 15 of his 600 acres, he will make the same profit from selling the energy he generates that he makes off the average crop. And so if he has a bad oh, year, well, that doesn't matter because he, he made his money off his solar anyways. And if he has a good year, then he makes double. So so immediately pairing local impacts with local solutions, I think we can actually bypass a lot of the manufactured politicization and controversy over the, the simple question of, you know, is it humans? Do you know if work is being done to make solar panels cheaper and more efficient in our country. Um, we seem to be dependent on China for the most efficient cells, unless I have my information wrong. Well, that that should be a serious concern for anyone who, who cares about American leadership, American ex exceptionalism, and the economy. Because you're right, China, um, from the government on down, is putting an enormous amount of research into developing better and more improved ways to generate energy to power its economy. Whereas, frankly, the, the current administration is putting more m money into trying to build better buggies and breed better horses, essentially, when Henry Ford is already turning out the Model T Ford. I mean, that's what investing in coal is like today in this day and age. But American ingenuity continues uh, because people, people really are investing. And one of, one of my favorite things is, is this Christmas, my husband surprised us with solar panels for our house, which was amazing. Um, the cost had come down with the rebates to such an extent that we could actually afford it when we couldn't before. And they've got great loans now where they look at your bill and they say, okay, well, we're going to... Um, we're going to bill you for the average power bill that you would have um, until you've paid off your solar panels. But he got the solar panels from a San Antonio company called Mission Solar that the last time oil prices dropped and a lot of people lost their jobs in the oil fields in West Texas, Mission Solar took in guys who had lost their jobs and retrained them to do solar panel manufacturing, which is a stable long-term job in the United States. And so in a way, those solar panels were kind of like a triple present for us because they will end up saving us money. They also help us to grow our own energy on our own roof, and they actually help to support local jobs and local um, development right here in Texas as well. That's good news. That's good news in many ways. Well, as, you were, as you were explaining that to me, I was thinking that it must sound heartless to people who have spent generations digging coal out of the ground so we can have uh, a light bulb that we heartlessly leave on all night and they, they face cave-ins and they really had, uh, have devoted so much to us. And now we're saying uh, we're going to move on to a different industry. How do we, how do we respond to their own personal need? That's why I think the concept of a just transition is so important. The idea that we need energy and people who have supplied us with energy from coal and from natural gas and from oil have provided us with a key resource that has given us the life that we have today. I, I'm, I'm grateful for the benefits that fossil fuels have brought us. So 
recognizing and honoring the service and the work of people who have done that for us for years and decades, I think is essential. What retraining programs can we offer for people so they can continue to support their families through their hard work the way they have already been doing and that want to continue to provide the energy that we need in the future? Do you think financially, economically, it can actually work? that we can spend the money as a nation uh, on helping to make a transition like that? If, if people want to, yes. But if you're spending money propping up coal companies that are just going to go bankrupt anyways, then you're, you're basically pouring your money down the drain in a way that does not ultimately profit the people who work in that industry. But giving giving them false hope is not the answer. Telling them we're, that, that we're, we're bringing back horses and buggies when we've got cars, that's not the answer. That is, I'm sorry to say, just lying to them. I see a change in the way corporate America is dealing with climate change and the climate crisis. It's, it's interesting that it's not often at the top of the list when political concerns are being talked about or argued in Congress. But all on their own, corporations are making changes in the way they carry on their business. Do you see that happening? And do you see real significant change coming from corporations? I absolutely do. I would say that the level of interest now in companies from Walmart, which is the richest corporation in the world, uh, to ag and even oil and gas companies um, is is significantly different than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So it is really encouraging to see what companies, for example, like Apple are doing, who have completely decarbonized their operations and are looking at decarbonizing their entire supply chain. But at the same time, it can be a little bit discouraging because then you have companies like you know, BP, who um, are, you know, ha- funding all these ads about how they're looking for low carbon energy to the future, but they continue to obstruct, obstruct climate action uh, behind the scenes. And when you look, when you go to Wikipedia and you just look at the richest corporations in the world, I think the magnitude of the challenge in front of us is clear because with the exception of Walmart, number one, and then you have Berkshire Hathaway, and then you have Apple, which is number 11, Every other company in between there that is the richest in the world primarily made their money through extracting, processing, selling, or building things that burn fossil fuels. And so we are not asking for a small change. We are talking about massively and radically altering the balance of power and wealth in this world. So that is the challenge that lies before us. And we have to do it with corporations, not against them. Working with people, working, you know, people who disagree with us across the political spectrum, across the economic spectrum, we have to figure out how to build from what connects us, what unites us rather than what divides us. Because when it all comes down to it, we are all humans who share the same home. So let me ask you again, now that we've had this conversation, how bad is it? Is it too late for us to do anything meaningful? Is there hope? Can we survive this crisis? 
It is not too late. I actually study the impacts of our choices that we make today on our future. And the biggest uncertainty in the future is the choices that we make. Our planet and our future really is in our hands. We have the ability to make that decision to ensure that we can continue to have a habitable planet that supports human civilization as well as the amazing diversity of life here on this planet. Or we could make the short-sighted decision to say, you know what, I don't care about myself, my family, my community, my city, my country, the world. I'm just going to do what seems most convenient today. That choice really does make a difference. And understanding that our choice matters, I think, is empowering because it actually shows that our actions matter. That's great. That's great. It makes me feel better. So you, you, you calm me down and you set me on the path to action. So you did a good job to me here today, and I thank you for that. Excellent. I hope you'll be interested in ending the show with us the way we usually do, which is I have seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers, and they're, they're, they're roughly about relating and communicating. You, you want to have a go at it? Absolutely. Okay. What do you wish you really understood how to speak such that people would listen. <laughs> I, I imagine that's kind of important given what we've been talking about. Yes. What do you wish other people understood about you? That I care about climate change because of who I am and who they are is also the perfect person to care about climate change, even if they haven't connected the dots. Okay, here's one. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, my goodness. I get some really strange ones about, you know, planet Nirabu and magnetic poles and all kinds of crazy scientific myths. Those are, those are some of my favorites. Well, what, what, what would be an example of one? I, I, I couldn't recognize one in that. Oh, well, you know, didn't life begin when planet Nirabu came closer to the Earth and there was just kind of a giant sloshing and things slid off that planet onto our planet? And, you know, as climate change gets worse, they'll just come closer and won't everything just slosh back? <laughs> you know, <laughs> isn't, isn't that the case, Dr. Hayhoe? <laughs> and the answer is, no, I don't think so. <laughs> planet Nirabu? Nirabu, yes. It sounds like a Japanese restaurant where you get really high-class food. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but but, it, but it, don't go there. It sloshes off your plate. Right. So now here's the next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I have actually learned this one. I went to a training workshop for women in academia that was taught by some theater professors from Harvard. And I asked them, well, how, how do you um, break in when someone is just talking over you and yelling at you, as happened to me when I was on the O'Reilly show? And they said... <laughs> What you do, it was actually Laura Ingram who was doing it. Bill was out that day. They said, what you do is you say their name, just their name, and you just up the volume on their name until they finally stop and let you get a word in edgewise. So that is what I do now. And that works, huh? I never heard that. Yeah. Very interesting. Next one, assuming empathy is not compassion for another person, but uh, just taking stock of their point of view, their where they come from, how they see the world. Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? Oh, my goodness. It is really difficult to feel empathy for people who are entirely motivated by, uh, by selfish concerns, who have the blinders over their eyes to such an extent that they are not willing, completely 100% unwilling, and have made a deliberate choice to be unwilling to consider the well-being of a single other human on this planet other than themselves. Those, I think, are the most difficult people to have empathy for. 
Okay, next one. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? No! (laughs) I don't like delivering bad news at all. I think my preference— So you you picked—you're one of the few people who pick carrier pigeon. (laughs) I would pick pick it, um, but I always do it in person because I feel like, um, you know, somebody really deserves to hear the bad news from you personally. Yeah, yeah. Everybody knows that, but everybody—what they prefer is some less stressful way to deliver it, I think. Yes. Uh, We all do. Okay, last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Uh, betrayal. Mm. I think that that friends are such an important part of our lives. But if you cannot trust a friend, if um, if you if you're afraid they're going to stab you in the back when you're not looking, I just think that that is a friendship ender. I can still respect the person. I can still wish the best for the person, but letting them um, inside the doors of my life again is very challenging. Well, thanks so much for a really, really interesting and important conversation. I'm so glad you joined us today. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. Great. Thanks an awful lot, Catherine. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to Discovery for being our presenting sponsor this season. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Catherine Hayhoe is an atmospheric scientist and professor of political science at Texas Tech University, where she's the director of the Climate Science Center. She's the co-author of the report we discussed, the congressionally mandated Fourth National Climate Assessment, released in November 2018 by the Trump administration and largely ignored by it. You can find it online at nca2018.globalchange.gov. That's nca2018.globalchange.gov. And you can find Catherine herself at katherinehayhoe.com and on Twitter at khayhoe. That's H-A-Y-H-O-E. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Catherine Hayhoe makes her point about the climate crisis by getting personal. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Katie Couric, who got really personal. When she was co-anchor of the Today Show on NBC, she allowed her colonoscopy to be shown on the air. It was really an effort for me to take a, a horrific and traumatic experience and try to do something positive with it. And and I think I felt at the time that I had this bully pulpit and I had a captive audience at least for a few minutes in the morning. And if I could help people understand that this was one cancer 
that is highly preventable if it's detected early, that I could spare other families uh, from going through what mine had gone through and leaving my daughters without a father at six and two. Join me as Katie Couric and I discuss her hugely influential career as a television journalist and as a passionate promoter of science. Next time on Clear and Vivid. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.